Good morning, church. My name is Mike Herrera, and I lead on the student life team here at WBC. We've got just a few announcements as we get started today. Ladies, we invite you to welcome Mandy Pearson, WBC missionary in Papua New Guinea, as our featured guest at Brunch with a Missionary. A cross-cultural mom of five, Mandy and her husband Ben are passionate about helping people in the most remote parts of the earth receive the scriptures in their native language. To register, visit wheatonbible.org slash missionarybrunch. A suggested donation of $5 can be paid online or at the door. The seniors ministry has taken a couple months off, but it's time to start our 2023 year of fun Friday nights. Our first event of the year is on Friday, March 3rd, where we'll be hosting our second annual Hidden Treasure Evening. This year's Hidden Treasure is the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College, where the friendships of C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers are remembered. Guest presenters, Drs. David and Crystal Downing are co-directors of the Wade Center. To register, visit wheatonbible.org slash seniorsministry or in person at your adult community or the welcome desk. Registration closes at the end of the month. If you're seriously dating or engaged, you're invited to our eight-week preparation for marriage class starting next Sunday, February 26th. In class, we will explore various topics such as biblical foundation for marriage, communication, and more. For more information or to register, visit wheatonbible.org marriage. If you'd like to serve on the committee that nominates elders each year or would like to suggest someone, please pick up a form at the welcome desk in the atrium. The deadline to submit the form is next Sunday, February 26. If you have any questions or need a form emailed to you, please email Donna Stone, Executive Administrative Assistant at dstone at wheatonbible.org. That's everything for today. We hope you have a great weekend. Good morning, church. Today, as we look forward to beginning of Lent on Wednesday, we are reminded of how much that all of us truly need a Savior. From 2 Samuel 22 says, The Lord is your rock and your fortress and your deliverer, your God, your, your rock in whom you take refuge. Call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Let's stand and sing together.
Jesus, reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty. fun, wasn't it? Love it. Let's read together from many different scriptures that talk about how desperate we are for a Savior and praising him. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things?
salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus is our resting place, the embodiment of our hope. Amen? Amen? Amen. I just want to make sure you guys are awake. Good morning. My name is Eric Solomon. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning, I can think of no better way to continue our worship than to take communion together as a family, to proclaim our trust in the Jesus who lived, died, and came back to life for us. This morning, we gather around this table to remind us of Jesus' grace, to continue to grow as his people, this, this community united in Jesus who lived and died for us. It is at this table that we continue to embody the family that Jesus saved us to be. We gather at this table not as sinless people, but as sinners who are in need of salvation, as broken people that are breaking bread and drinking a cup that remind us of the one who was broken and poured out for us. And so if you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and came back to life, that you might have life, then this table is for you. As we eat and drink, would you remember his grace? Would you receive his grace again? But if you don't believe in Jesus yet, then this table is also for you. Not that you might eat and drink, but that you might see past the bread and the cup and see the Savior that they point to. That you might believe, because these elements, they are not magical. They do not save. Only Jesus saves. And so if you don't know Jesus yet, don't take these elements. Instead, would you receive the Savior that they point to? I encourage you to consider the most important question of your life. Who is this Jesus? And I pray that this table might be the beginning of the answer to that question for you, if you don't believe in him yet, like it has been for us who take So, familia, as we prepare to eat and drink, I want to invite you to proclaim together what we believe by reading the Apostles' Creed together. Christians, what do we believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In light of what we believe, this gospel we proclaim as we take this meal together, let's take time right now to recognize the weight of our sin and the all-encompassing sacrifice of Christ together. Let's take a moment to reflect, to confess, and to remember together. to you who are rich in mercy and we humbly confess our sins. Your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and we believe that this morning. We confess both what we have done and what we have left undone and we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for saving us. We proclaim your salvation as we eat this bread and drink this cup together. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, familia, let me encourage you to open up your cups, open up your bread. I'm actually going to ask you to hold up the bread together as a family. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. I'm also going to ask you to raise the cup. Paul continues in chapter 11, verse 25. He says this, In the same way also Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Gracious God, you tell us, In your word, that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death until you come. Every time we do this, Lord, we proclaim our trust in you. Today we live by grace knowing that nothing but your blood can make us clean. Today we proclaim that you are our hope, you are our peace. And it is in the name of Jesus that we eat, drink, and pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond with celebration of what God has given us.
to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Dark is the stain that we As we take a moment to greet each other now, find someone you don't know, even if you have to walk across the aisle, and introduce, say your name and how long you've been going to the church. Amen, familia. I didn't know I would have to interrupt this, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask you to take a seat. They make me bad cop this morning. At this time, I, I do want to call the ushers to the front as we continue our worship by giving. The scriptures, they teach us that generosity is core to who God is which means that it's core to who God's people are. You see, the good news of Jesus is the good news of God's generosity. He, he gave everything for us because he loves us. He gives because he loves. And this morning, I want to remind us as the people of God that we love because he loved, we give because he gave. And so I want to thank you, Familia, as you continue to step into who God saved you to be by being generous people, by giving in your church family. Ushers, you can now pass the plates. Now, as we pass the plates, I do want to tell you about an amazing opportunity we have coming up here at WBC. 
You might have seen the rolling slide this morning when you were walking in, but, but I'm excited to announce this morning that we are, we are launching this new seminar series called Kingdom Conversations, where we as a family dive into important topics and learn together how the scriptures help us engage with them. And so this year, our seminar is going to be focused on, on parenting. You see, in a day and age where there are more than enough things going on with kids and students of our church family that make us say, maybe, I was not thinking about that when I was that age. You know what I'm talking about, like the whole back in my day thing? Well, whether you're new at this parenting thing or you've been at it for a while already or, or maybe you've hit that sweet grandparenting stage where you just give out candy and then hand the children back. Or even if you're someone who's serving in a parenting kind of role, we want to invite you to this seminar. Our team of pastors and staff, we're going to be leading these sessions and workshops focused on shepherding our kids' hearts in, in today's changing culture because we believe that understanding your biblical calling in, in this current cultural context is crucial to being faithful and fruitful. So we want to equip you and encourage you as we partner with you in discipling your children. So some specifics. The dates for this seminar are March 10th and 11th. The cost is $25 per person. There's paid childcare available to sign up. If you want all this information or you just aren't remembering everything that I'm saying right now, that's okay. You can go to the website, wheatonbible.org slash parentseminar for more information. I want you to pray about it. And then I want you to sign up. We'd love to see you there. Let's take a moment now as we continue in worship to pray together as we prepare our hearts to step into God's word. Our Father in heaven, this morning we've sung of your grace. We've prayed because of your grace. We've eaten and drank at the table that was set by your grace and we've responded to your generous grace with our giving. And so we pray that you would once again show us your grace as we sit under your word. We are a people not because of anything we have in common, but because you have made us a people. And so as we submit to your word this morning and throughout this, the week, would you continue to shape us as your gracious and generous people? Would you meet those who are suffering with your comfort through your people? Would you give us opportunities to rejoice together in what you are doing in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? Would you continue to shape us into a generous and gracious people who day in and day out proclaim the realities of your kingdom? That Jesus has really come. That he is really God. That he really did die and come back to life for the sins of all who would believe. God, continue to make us who you have saved us to be as we submit to your word together this morning. Amen and amen. Good morning, church family. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Today's reading is taken from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, and you can find that on page 88 of your journals. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus, our King, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this moment be a pleasing sacrifice of worship to you, King Jesus. Amen. All right, familia, today we continue our our Matthew series and we start this new section we have called the King of Glory. So before we get going, if you haven't already, I want to make sure that you pick up your new sticker for this section out in the atrium after service. Don't leave now, wait till we are done, and then go get your sticker. Just checking. As we begin this next section, we step back into the scriptures and we find ourselves in a text that is swirling with questions, rocks and revelations, keys and kingdoms, and and some kind of non-disclosure agreement for the disciples. What is going on here? Well, 2,000 years ago, In a border town on the edge of Israel and the world, Jesus asks a question that echoes across history. Now, for those of you who might know me, you might remember that I love questions. I have 10 questions in the barrel at all times because I'm super curious, and if I'm honest, I have no chill. Now, one of the reasons I married my wife, Jocelyn, is because she keeps me from being weird at parties because I have no chill. But lack of chill aside, I do think that questions are super important. I think questions, they help us grow in our understanding and in our relationships. And and in particular, there are some questions that I think stand out in life. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're in kindergarten and someone comes up to you and asks, hey, do you want to be my friend? That's huge, right? Or maybe middle school or high school creeps up and the whole, are we boyfriend, girlfriend question starts to make teenagers and parents irrational. Maybe it's the big adult questions. Will you marry me? College? No college. Major? Just trying to figure out my life. There are important life questions that hit at different stages of life, but this morning, our text confronts us with what I think, what I believe is the most important question in life, no matter what stage you find yourself in. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? Who do you believe he is? And... Does it even matter what you think about Jesus? Questions matter, but this one question matters most. And that's where I want us to start as we sit under this text today. So here's how we're going to break down this text as we eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Beginning with verses 13 through 15, I want us to look at that question, right? The question we answer, the question we all have to answer. What I'm thankful for is that as we continue to overhear this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, the Lord does not leave us to figure things out, right? The text points us to the answer, but it's not just an answer. You see, from verses 16 to 17, we are confronted with an answer that Jesus explains is more than what we think it is, right? It is not just an answer, it's a revelation we believe, a revelation from the one who made us and is on a mission to save us. And then we'll round out our time, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus unveils how that mission of salvation is going to spread throughout time and space through this church that he's building. The question we answer, the revelation we believe, 
and the church he builds. It's our roadmap as we travel with the disciples and Jesus into Caesarea Philippi, this border town on the edge of a world that's about to meet its only hope of salvation. So if you've got your journal or your Bible, we're going to pick up the text in verse 13, looking for the question we answer. The question we all have to answer, the question Jesus confronts us with this morning, who do you say I am? Look at the text. Matthew tells us, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Context. Jesus and his disciples have just had a confrontation with the religious leaders. A a provocative confrontation, I might add, that captures this mounting tension and animosity that that Jesus' ministry has cultivated among the people who are supposed to get it. They don't get it. And Jesus calls them on it. And then Jesus walks away as their jaws drop and their hearts harden. (laughs) Then Jesus and his disciples, they, they hop in a boat and they cross the lake. And along the way, Jesus warns those disciples about the error that just solidified the religious leaders in their rebellion. But they don't get it either. And yet, Jesus does not condemn them. He teaches them. And now in our text, he's at it again. He's teaching in his brilliant and provocative Jesus kind of way. Because you see, Jesus doesn't do coincidence or or chance. He's purposeful. He's strategic. He's deliberate. And so this guided tour of Caesarea Philippi is not an accident. 2,000 years ago, Jesus leads his disciples to the border town of Caesarea Philippi in order to ask a question. Yes, he's going to do miracles and preach the gospel there, but before he does that in the town, he's going to preach the gospel to his disciples by asking them a question in the very place that the nations of the world and the people of God meet and mingle and where God is on a mission. You see, in Caesarea Philippi, there are temples everywhere. There's a temple to Caesar, hence the name. There's a cave that's thought to be this gate to the underworld that became this temple to Pan, this Greek god of fertility, one of the Greek life-giving gods, if you will. He is surrounded by gods which are not gods, and the scriptures tell us that he asks a question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, if you've been tracking with the story, you know that Jesus is using a title in this question that, if you've been counting, he's used nine times already in the Gospel of Matthew. It's his favorite title, and essentially Jesus is here asking, who do people say I am? Essentially, Jesus is doing a straw poll. He's preparing to lead his disciples to a better understanding of who he is, but he wants to get their reference point. Look at the text. The the disciples reply. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And then there's still like a group of people that says Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Notice what they're reporting. From the Herod-sourced fear of John the Baptist come back to life, to these whispers of Elijah or Jeremiah reincarnated, the disciples, they, they answer Jesus by essentially saying that the people think you're some kind of old prophet, a, a 2.0 prophet, if you will. You see, the crowd has no category for Jesus, so they're trying to fit him into one of their pre-existing categories. And yet Jesus doesn't fit. Square peg, round hole. Now, I'll be fair. The crowd is partially true, right? Jesus is a prophet. Like one scholar writes, Jesus speaks God's words and works God's wonders like a prophet. The problem is not that they think he's a prophet. The problem is that they think that's all he is. 
And Jesus is about to redefine their categories. So his next step is, is to ask another question. Well, maybe not another question, maybe a more provocative form of the first question. Verse 15, what about you? Who do you say I am? How about you guys? Like, they may say those things about me, but, but what do you think? Who, who do you say I am? Kind of like when the teacher puts a kid on the spot in the middle of class, you're trying not to make eye contact and they still ask you the question. That's what Jesus is doing here. I'm asking about them, but now I'm asking about you. Standing in the middle of a city that's representing this major intersection of religions and gods and, and all kinds of people that are trying to answer the question of God with their own stone replicas, Jesus asked a question to 12 men who have left everything to follow him. Why? Because the answer to that question is going to change the world. You see, the world we live in today is not all that different from Caesarea Philippi, at least spiritually speaking. Right? All over the world, there are statues trying to answer this question for people. Whether those statues have faces or use face ID to unlock glowing rectangles that run our lives, there are all sorts of ways we try to answer this question. From technology to atheism to postmodernism to you do you to some kind of generic spirituality that tries to convince us that we just need to look inside for the answers. From Islam to Buddhism to Hinduism to teams with jerseys or calendars with time blocks to try to convince us if we just work hard enough or get our kids into the right schools or work out enough, we'll be saved from whatever we think is the worst thing that could happen to us. Whatever the functional savior we have, the question of Jesus shouts from verse 15. It cuts through the noise as Jesus stands in the middle of a religious and lost world asking the only question that will free us. Who do you say I am? Listen, church, the answer is not inside of us. The answer comes from above, from the God who is pursuing us. Because the question we need to answer cannot be answered on our own. It needs to be revealed by the God who is on a mission to save us. And it needs to be believed. And that is precisely what happens as the question of Jesus hangs in the air and this brave and brash disciple steps up to answer it. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Bold, brash, and let's be honest, this is why I love Peter because he just goes for it, man. Right? He, is, he is more right than he even knows. Because notice what he calls Jesus, the Messiah, Right, the Christ, you're the one we've been waiting for. If you've been reading the story, you might notice this is actually the first time in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has called the Messiah directly by someone in the story. Peter continues, you are the son of the living God, surrounded by uh, idols made of rock and wood, no more alive than the materials that they are carved out of. Peter names Jesus among the living, the living God. Not one of these dead gods. He is the son of the living God, the one true God who has life in himself. Peter may not understand everything he's saying. Like many people in scripture, he speaks more than he knows. But that's what makes his answer, his confession of Jesus' identity, so remarkable. Right? He says the words, but he may not really understand what he's saying, kind of like the first time you might say, I love you. Whether it's in middle school or college or whenever you actually said it, those words take decades to fully comprehend. 
Peter may understand that Jesus is king, but he has little to no idea what kind of king Jesus is. Trust me, just read ahead a little bit in the text and you'll see what I mean. Peter speaks more than he knows. But let's be honest, isn't that kind of the story of our discipleship? Peter's confession is one step in his growth. And he's not going to get clarity until Jesus dies and comes back to life. But it is a step. A step closer to Jesus. And Jesus is patient. He teaches. He asks questions. He leads us closer and closer as we go deeper and deeper Understanding who he is and why he came. Little by little. In Spanish we say paso por paso. Step by step. It's how we grow. By following God's lead. Because growth is not something we generate. It's something God leads us into. Look at the next verse. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You can almost feel the power of this moment as as Peter finishes his confession and Jesus pronounces a beatitude. Blessed are you. Right? Something has happened. The the air has shifted. The the tone is different. Some people call this the, the turning point of Matthew. Jesus' plan is unfolding and he is carefully defining the moment for us. I mean, look what he calls Simon Peter, son of Jonah. He continues, you're blessed because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Do you see the contrast Jesus is making here? Right? Simon didn't get this from another human being. This came from heaven, not, not from Peter's brilliance, not from some genius of some other person. Peter did not look deep inside for the answer. He did not study enough to get to the answer. He, he did not work out the answer for himself from what he saw and heard. He, he, he can't show his work because there is no work to show. He listened. He watched. But so did the Pharisees. So did the crowds. The only reason Peter got to the answer is because it was revealed to him by God. The listening and the watching mattered. But the pieces were only put together because God opened Peter's eyes and ears, Peter's heart, and led him to this confession. Listen to me. You and I need to get clear on this. It's not because of our Midwest nice or our spotless integrity or our incredibly outgoing personality or our amazing credentials and intellect or even our really heartfelt seeking that made the difference and brought us to Jesus. God was at work. The gospel will not let us take God's credit. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive again in Christ. He drew us to him like he drew Peter to him, like he drew his disciples to him, and everyone that we call brother or sister in Christ. All of us came not because of who we were or what we could bring, what we could contribute to the team, but because God loved us. The scriptures testify we love because he first loved us. And so the answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is supernaturally, miraculously revealed by God which means something very important for you and I. It means that the very fact that this question was rattling around in your head at some point, maybe rattling around in your head right now, is proof that God pursued you, is pursuing you. He is revealing himself to you. Like Peter, we are all confronted with this question. 
a question we need to answer, a, a revelation we need to believe. If, if you're wondering about this, maybe you're here and, and you're like, I don't know why I'm in church, but I, 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 I'm here. Someone invited me. Maybe you're wondering about this question. What is this guy talking about? My encouragement to you is chase it. Don't just let the question fade. Keep asking. Lean in. In fact, I'll even shameless plug here. On Thursday nights, we have a group called Alpha that is chasing these very questions. We have life groups where people are talking about these very things, trying to get into these kind of questions. Or, or maybe you're more comfortable pressing into these questions in an adult community, talking with someone. I, I don't care how you do it. I just care that you don't let this moment pass and actually pursue this question. Stop at the front desk and, and, and be brave enough to ask a question and they will get you to the right place. But listen to me, this is the most important question you could ever answer in your life. And the fact that you're even wondering about it now is because God is pursuing you and revealing himself to you. Are you listening? Maybe you're a Christian here and you're thinking, Eric, listen, I've answered the question, man. Like Peter, I believe he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm gonna challenge you with something. Maybe, like Peter, you might still be growing in your understanding of what that means. What it means to live in light of that confession. That's actually why I think Jesus does what he does and doesn't leave well enough alone and keeps talking to Peter. Because you see, Jesus is not just interested in answers revealed, he's also interested in building his church. Creating and cultivating a, a community of people who believe he is who he says he is, who, who, that he did he, what he said he would do, that are chasing this, that there is salvation to be found in the good news of the son of the living God dying for us, coming back to life for us, that we never graduate from this news, that we are continuing to grow in this. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 18. Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus continues his response to Peter's confession, and he uses the word church for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, the only time in any of the Gospels. To Peter's heaven-revealed confession, Jesus reveals another part of his earth-shaking plan. He's not stopping at 12. He's building a church. A church that will go across time and space and show up in all these beautiful local church families, but all be tied together in this one Savior. And this church is going to be built on a solid foundation. The question for us this morning, and the question throughout church history with this text, has been what in the world is the foundation? In other words, what does Jesus mean when he says rock? Is he talking about Peter? Is he talking about Peter's confession? Is he talking about himself? To the Roman Catholic, this is the beginning of the papacy, right? A succession plan of popes who succeed Peter as the first pope. To many Protestants, the answer is a shift in focus. No, no, Jesus is not focused on Peter. He's focused on Peter's confession. Some try to shoot the middle, and say it's about Peter, but not in a popish kind of way. More like Peter was first, important, but not a pope. So which is it? What is Jesus talking about? Well, before I walk us down this road, I, I do want to point out two ditches on either side, and then I'm going to get you to what I think he's talking about, and I'm going to tell you why we did all that work and why it matters. So you're going to need to track with me, take a sip of coffee, like we're going to work through some things. But there's two ditches on this road before we start walking. 
There are two temptations within this text. We are tempted to either over or underemphasize Peter. Either he's the Pope or he doesn't matter at all. But I think that misses what's happening here. You see, I think there's something special that's here between Peter and Jesus, right? Peter is the only one who spoke up. God revealed the truth about Jesus to him, which is a big deal. Peter matters, but he is not all that matters. And he does not matter more than the other disciples. I mean, in just a few verses, Peter's going to mess up just as bad as he got it right here. If you track with the story of the early church, Peter is not the one that calls all the shots. At one point, he's called out by Paul for making a huge mistake and jeopardizing the preaching of the gospel. Like one pastor writes, this verse has something to do with Peter and everything to do with Jesus. To get to the Pope or some kind of apostolic succession plan is to, I think, read a lot in this text, especially in a gospel account where Peter's last words are denying Jesus. I think we need to be focusing on the one whose last words are that all authority has been given to him. And so here's what I think is happening here. Did you drink your coffee yet? I think the rock in this text is not Peter, is not Peter's confession, but it's the one Peter is confessing, Jesus. I'm going to show my work, though. I was convinced of this from the work of a pastor theologian we've referenced in this series, Doug O'Donnell, and I'll give you the argument as quick as I can to show you how I got there, but then really because I want to explain why it matters. So look with me at verse 18. I want you to notice a funny little word there that's describing the word rock. Do you see it? It's the word this. Now, I'm a huge word nerd, and I'm not going to take you down that path fully. But I will say that I think there's something important happening here because Jesus is clearly talking to Peter. right? Verse 17, blessed are you, revealed to you. 18, I tell you, you are. 19, I give you whatever you bind, whatever you lose. You, Peter. But Jesus is also clearly talking about himself. My father is the one who revealed this to you. I tell you, I will build. Verse 19, I will give. Normal conversation. You, I. Until we slow down and see the word this. Not you are Peter and on you, the rock, I will build. But you are Peter and on this rock, I will build. Why does this matter? Because this word is is a speed bump. It should cause us to slow down enough to wonder, what is Jesus really talking about here? Hold that thought. Put a pin in it. There's one other thing I want us to consider as we read this text. No text in Scripture stands alone. It's always surrounded by context. It's always held together by the whole Scripture. So if you and I were to sit down and look for the word that's translated here as rock, what we would find is that in Matthew it shows up only four times. Twice in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about Jesus' teachings. Once here... And then one more time at the end of the book when Matthew describes the tomb, an actual rock. Interesting. Well, Eric, how about the rest of the New Testament? Great job. Great question. From Matthew to Revelation, this word shows up 12 times. And when it's not talking about a literal rock, it's always talking about Jesus. It is only ever talking about Jesus. Even in the letters of Peter, when he's writing about living stones, he uses a different word. And get this. Peter is never called the rock or the stone anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, when, Peter, when Paul writes Ephesians 2 that the house of God is built on a foundation, perfect opportunity, he doesn't single out Peter. Instead, he writes that the house of God, another way of talking about the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
Jesus is the most important stone in the foundation, not Peter. Okay, Eric, but what about the whole Bible? Man, you guys are on a roll today. In the entire Bible, there's no one called rock except God alone. The Psalms call God our rock. Even in the, tra- the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, it, God, the word that's used for rock is used of God alone. No one else is described like this. Okay, nerd session over. Here's why that matters. This little word, this, makes us slow down enough to wonder what's going on. And this word rock that shows up all over the place in the Bible is only ever about God. This is why I think this rock is Jesus. Doug O'Donnell paraphrases his text to make it easier to see, writing, he says this, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, visualize Jesus pointing to himself, if that helps, I, yes me, Peter, not you, will build my, not your church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give, Jesus still the subject, you, let's talk about your role, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter confesses this revelation he receives from the Father about Jesus. And Jesus expands the revelation to affirm his answer and explain how he as the Savior will build his church. That this church is built on him. That he is both architect and foundation. Designer and cornerstone. Here's why this matters. Because the church is built on no human being no matter how right their answer is. It is and always has been a community of people who submit to who God has revealed Jesus to be, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The church is not built on a pope or some kind of your favorite pastor who speaks really well. It is built on Jesus and Jesus alone. The kingdom has come and his people are being gathered and Jesus will build his church. With imperfect humans who still need to grow, who know that they need him, Imperfect people who recognize him and humbly accept the revelation of God answering the most important question, who do you say I am? It is he who builds and he on who the church is built. That's why he continues saying the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Quick cultural and history lesson. Gates are pretty important for a city's security. Hades is another name for the realm of the dead. What Jesus is essentially saying here is that death and the one who tries to wield the power of death, Satan, will not overpower the church being built. The attacks of Satan will not defeat the church. By the power of the living God, the church will overcome death every time they preach the gospel and God saves another person from being dead in sin to being alive in him. But I do want to be careful here. Look at the context of this conversation. All of this is based on Peter's confession, God's revelation, the identity of Jesus, not some kind of war room conversation planning tactics and strategies for some kind of culture war. In fact, in the very next passage, we read that Jesus' strategy is is a little upside down. It it is victory through death, salvation through sacrifice. The the upside down, inside out way of the kind of church Jesus is building is precisely through death. Death. Jesus is certainly talking about overcoming, but he defines overcoming on his own terms. For Jesus, the way up is down. The way to win is to lose. The way to life is death. And the church he builds follows him through death into resurrection. Jesus died for the church and nothing in this world or the next can overcome it because he is the one who builds his church, but he builds his church through his people. Look at verse 19. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, in this passage, Jesus is still talking to Peter. But again, whole Bible, in just two chapters, Jesus will say something pretty similar to all of the disciples. So what's going on here? What's with all these keys and binding and loosing? Well, let me start with the keys. I still remember the first time I got a set of house keys as a teenager. It came with this weight, right? This sense of responsibility. Not only could I get in the house now, but I could let other people into the house. Carrying keys is a sign of authority. I am authorized to let people in here. I think this is something of what Jesus is getting at with this illustration. Because later in Matthew, Jesus applies this picture to the religious leaders and he says the opposite. They shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. These religious leaders who he's just arguing about a few verses ago, they don't go into the kingdom and they won't let anyone else in. But Jesus' disciples are to do the opposite. They're supposed to preach the gospel that invites all who believe into the kingdom. They are not the ones who determine who gets in. God is the one who does that. He's the one who's revealing himself to people. But he does do that through the preaching of the gospel. And they are to preach the gospel. And in that preaching, there's a clear message. You believe in Jesus, you're in. You reject Jesus, you're not. God's people carry the keys because they communicate the message. Because the gospel is a restatement that announces what God has already decided. Those who repent are forgiven of their sins and those who don't are not. The church, its leaders, the entire church hold these keys so long as they hold to the key message of the kingdom, the gospel. But Jesus' words are not just about keys. Then he starts talking about binding and loosing. Well, This language is borrowed culturally from the way some rabbis function. Binding and loosing is another way of saying how they applied what God had decreed. Here's what God said. Here's the situation. How does this apply here? Where the keys are the way to get in, but binding and loosing is how to live once we're in. I think this is a summary way of talking about the Sermon on the Mount. It's another way of talking about what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit how someone gets into the kingdom, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, how to live once you're in. Jesus is telling his church that by preaching the gospel, they are to help people get in and live in the kingdom. This verse is not saying that heaven has to do whatever the church says, as if the church lets people into the kingdom or denies access and God just has to comply. What Jesus is saying is that the church And all of the leaders in the church, all of their authority, it all comes from Jesus, from the gospel. Because at the end of Matthew, he is the one who has all authority. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 1 and 3, it is Jesus who is said to hold the keys. It is Jesus who builds his church, not us. It is Jesus who defines himself, not us. Which is why I think in this text we get what we get in verse 20. Look at the last verse of our text this morning. Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, that's anticlimactic. What's happening here? Let me start by telling you what's not happening. Jesus is not scared to own who he is. He's not trying to hide. What Jesus is wisely avoiding is the box that everyone was trying to put him into. He's not just a prophet. He is something more. 
And, and, and he wants the answer to his question, who do you say I am, to be answered by faith and obedience to him, not some kind of nationalistic frenzy or some kind of grab at power. If I just get close enough to Jesus, I can kind of sit in a throne with him. You see, knowing Jesus is the Messiah is one thing. Knowing what it means that Jesus is the Messiah is something else entirely. Familia, do you understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Right? Maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. But now, like I said earlier, this question is stuck in your head. Like I said, don't ignore it. Lean into it. Ask the questions. Come to Alpha. Talk to a Christian brother or sister. Let Jesus define who he is for you. But maybe you're here and you do believe in Jesus but you might be realizing as I've been talking that you've been defining Jesus in your own way. You have not let Jesus define himself. You believe in Jesus according to your own categories. Just some kind of prophet that said nice things about God. Or someone to help you out when things get really tough. Or maybe just someone to give you a bunch of information but not really mess with your life. If you're not sure if you're doing that, here's, I think, one of the best ways to figure that out. When Jesus does something that you think he shouldn't do, how do you react? Do you react in humility or in anger? Right? Do, do you come to him even broken and struggling, asking, trying to figure things out, but still coming to him? Or do you pull away? Well, if Jesus, if you're like that, then I think you and I need to take a break. This is why I say this is the most important question we could ever answer. Because who you think Jesus is affects everything from how you believe the world works to who you believe you even are to where you look for meaning and salvation. And this morning, I want that question to hang in the air as we pray and as we sing that we might really consider, who do you say Jesus is? Is it who Jesus says he is? If not, would you humble yourself to find out who he really is and follow him? Let's pray. Gracious God, as we continue to open our hearts and minds to you, would you remind us as we sing that we do indeed have a Savior, that Jesus died for us, that there is a way back to you, that Jesus came back to life for us, that there is life in you. We praise you, God, because you are our King. Would you humble us this morning? Would you show us who you are that we might answer the question even if we don't fully understand it? That we might humbly answer the question, you are the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, the Son of the living God who calls from death and sin all who believe in him to life in him. Draw us closer to you, we pray. Amen and amen. familiar song there is a redeemer and proclaim what we've been talking about and then also repeat a song we learned last week psalm 150 let everything that has breath praise the lord for providing a redeemer for us let's stand
We praise the God who not only made us, but sent his son to save us. Amen? I think one of the most important ways you can praise the Lord as you leave today is to take a minute to stop in the atrium and ask the question, if you haven't asked it before, who do you say Jesus is? Don't just rush out of here. That question matters. Before I send you out, familia, would you receive this blessing from Psalm 67, verses 1 through 2? May God be gracious to you and bless you And make his face shine on you so that his ways 
might be known on earth so that his salvation might be known among all nations. We in Bible Church, you are sent.